The business of culture, the culture of business, media, markets, policy, creatives. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The fact that we have to convince people that we are essential is extremely problematic. Because regardless of how they feel about whether we're essential or not, we are. And if we fail, they fail. And, and, and this system doesn't work. The system doesn't work without local newspapers on so many levels. With the internet relentlessly swapping out newspaper and magazine dollars for nickels and dimes and pennies, so many newsrooms have been gutted over 20 years, turning cities big and small into journalism deserts. Can anything be done to buck the trend? Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout-out to our broadcast partners, WVTF Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me for the James River Writers discussion, the role of local journalism in a healthy democracy, Michael Paul Williams, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the Richmond Times Dispatch, Shireen Azimi of the Institute for Nonprofit News, and Mallory Perryman, professor of journalism at VCU's Robertson School of Media and Culture. Welcome. Michael, I have been steeped in this for Virginia Public Radio because Virginia is getting walloped in particular by the um, voracious demand that a handful of hedge funds have for regional newspapers, including your own, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, which is owned by Lee Enterprises, which was briefly owned by Warren Buffett. I remember when he acquired it roughly, what, eight, nine years ago, he said that People, uh, uh, picnics, church picnics are still going to advertise in local newspapers. They're not going anywhere. You fast forward, he spun it off to Lee and he said that local news is toast. And now you guys are staring down the barrel of of a hedge fund that's been known to strip and flip and kind of ride out late stage newspapers. What, what are your thoughts? I mean, I know you've lost many colleagues over the last three months. Yeah, um, going back to Mr. Buffett, I took his acquisition of media general newspapers as a labor of love because I simply could not believe that the Oracle of Omaha would look at the newspaper industry and see a windfall. Newspapers still make money, but I just did not think that the disillusionment that he expressed years down the road that we weren't more profitable Um, I just didn't see that coming. I thought he viewed newspapers as the fourth estate, a public service, something that's not your usual typical business. Mm. So that was disappointing. And so here we are, like a lot of newspapers in um, uh, the situation that we're in, where we're fighting off hedge funds, shedding staff, and who ends up being the loser in that? Well, obviously the newspaper employees who lose their jobs, but also our readers. And none of that to our topic, du jour is good for democracy. 
Professor Perryman, what is it about newspapers? They used to have these toothsome cash flows back in the day when people are nostalgic about the era, the drink carts. It's almost this madmen-like fatigue. There was no Craigslist to worry about, no Google or Facebook with the advertising duopoly sucking up all the you know ad revenue for newspapers. I grew up reading the Miami Herald and it was big and it was thick and you you would dream of being someone like a Carl Hyacinth or a Dave Barry or Edna Buchanan. You know, you'd go to J school, you'd take on that debt and everything in the hopes of of working at a at a newspaper and kind of cutting your teeth and becoming a Pulitzer Prize winner or breaking a news story. Uh, now uh, what you're seeing is actually the have lots and the have really littles. Uh, the, the New York Times has kind of figured its way out of this, has gotten people to pay dearly for digital subscriptions and audio and video and crosswords and Wordle and whatever you want to call it. The Boston Globe has a billionaire backstop. The Wall Street Journal was acquired by Rupert Murdoch, for better or for worse. The Los Angeles Times acquired one of the by one of the wealthiest people in California. Is there kind of any other way out of this? Have any other models struck you as as sustainable? Is or is it just charity versus billionaire? Well, if you if you want to know why newspapers were so important, right? It was the smell and the crinkle sound they make when you when you lay them out, right? You just you can't uh, you can't beat that. <laughs> so I, I hope I hope it doesn't completely go away, but it it really seems like that might be the direction that we're headed. Um, we're seeing an increase in, of course, hedge funds slash philanthropists who really want to save local newspapers. So you're seeing a renewed interest in that. But more than anything, you're seeing a move towards nonprofit. Um, nonprofit by choice. Yes. And that seems to be sort of a, um, I, I was just looking at some data from Pew uh, Research Center about how 20% of the state reporters in the country are now nonprofit reporters, which is a very, it was, that's about four times as many as there were in 2014. So a, a massive increase. So we're seeing a move towards that in a way, because we're, we know that interestingly, as the world moves more towards a subscription model, we're not sure that subscription models will ever be <laughs> profitable again for news, even though everything else seems to be a subscription now. Um, and, you know, you got your Netflix and whatnot, um, but that model is, is a very popular funding model. But of course, it, it didn't work out so well for most newspapers um, after ad revenue dried up when mostly due to, of course, Google and Facebook sucking up those dollars more so than anything else. Um, but that'd be one trend that I, I find very interesting. But the question of how will local newspapers, the few that are left, because we are we are losing them fast and furious. I mean, it's been a mass dieout since the turn of the century. And even if, you know, you could see the Pew numbers since the financial crisis. And it's uh, still going. And it, it, there doesn't seem to be an insight, but I, it's interesting when you go to these, I go to tons of journalism conferences and it's always, of course, everybody's like, does anyone, has anyone figured out the new funding model yet? And of course, nobody has. <laughs> Shireen, jump in. Have other countries done it in a better way? Why do I think tangentially Canada or Australia or New Zealand or somebody has a sense for the public utility and the public good, not to just leave this to the, you know, caprice of uh, shareholders or, or wealthy families. Right. Well, I, I can't speak to the the, the 
the globe. But I will say that people are coming, um, certainly they're coming to the Institute for Nonprofit News to find out how American, North American nonprofits are doing it. And that includes Canada and the Caribbean. Um, so we've seen a rapid growth of our membership over the last five years, and especially over the last three years, believe it or not, during the pandemic, more uh, nonprofit news organizations are joining. Some of them are startups, but not all. Some of them are conversions. Some of them are tiny, but not all. Um, I was just looking at our most recent index data, and we have a new one coming out in a couple of weeks. Mallory, I'm sure you'll be interested to, to see the data, but you know, about 20% of the membership has operating budgets of 2 million or more. Again, not they're not huge, but they're also not you know, in infinitesimal and more than a quarter have staffs, you know, in the in the dozens. So while there's this perception that there are all these kind of mom and pop shops, you know, taking the place of the newspapers that have failed, that's actually not the case. And we're seeing not only more of these organizations, but their revenues are diversifying so that organizations that initially started out with foundation funding or maybe one or two key donors are now attracting more donations in the five to 10,000 and above range, more regional and community foundations that are stepping in to join the national ones that kind of led the charge and more earned revenue from advertising, business sponsorships and events. So it's, you know, it's sort of a myth that nonprofits can't take advertising, they do, but it's a much more kind of selective kind of locally oriented advertising. And sometimes it's what they call a business membership where the business, they want the eyeballs, but they also kind of want the goodwill and they want to reach a certain audience that that local newspaper reaches. And so they'll do a sponsorship. So I do think there is some hope for a different model. Michael, take me back to graduating from uh, journalism school. You shared with me how important was it Northwestern, Northwestern School of Journalism was in the journey to becoming, you know, uh, to being at a desired uh, uh, paper where you could establish a voice and a corner and a community and uh, really carve out a name for yourself. Well... God, I can barely remember. When did you come to Richmond? Um, I, I am a Richmond native, and I've worked at the Times-Dispatch for my entire career, which wow. makes me an anomaly. And certainly, um, um, I'm, I've, my, my type has gone the way of the dinosaur. You won't find newspaper journalists who are going to work 40 years at the same newspaper again. Those days are done. But when I entered the newspaper business in the early 1980s, even wow. though we were in the midst of a recession... Um, newspapers were still a license to print money. And um, there were just all sorts of extravagances that, that I witnessed over the next decade that made you think the good times would always be there. And that hasn't been the case, obviously. And the internet um, was the major turning point. What was going through your mind when you got on Netscape in 1994, 1995, and they put all this stuff up? We used we, they, they brought the, the computers in the newsroom and told us to play games on them, to get accustomed to using them. So I, I remember a lot of time spent playing Jeopardy and, and online games, it was a gas. And you just did not take it seriously. I mean, it's easy um, in hindsight to cast aspersion at the people who ran newspapers for not having more vision, um, for not buying Google, Google, getting in on the ground floor and, and scooping that up and we'd all be good at that point. No, you didn't see that coming. And, just the decision to give it away. It, it wasn't taken seriously, clearly. Although riddle me this, you are smarter people than I am. Why do they get to use, why do the Googles of the world, why do the Facebooks of the world, why do the Twitters of the world get to use our content and not remunerate us one penny? Please explain that to me. Dr. Per Dr. Perryman, jump in. 
they'd had an agreement at one point and it did not work out well. <laughs> it was, it went from, it was something special. It was like Facebook news or something. And they were going to give news organizations a cut or a certain percentage of um, the revenue from all of the clicks. And uh, I don't know what happened to that. I'm pretty sure it's no longer, <laughs> it's no longer a thing. That's interesting. Um, I mean, do they, do they share metrics with you, Michael, of how many people come straight to the RTD's website for your copy versus those who access it through Google or Facebook or Twitter or some other fast track channel where they can capture the rents? Uh, I'm sure they do, but all that's way above my pay grade. I'm just a, a country journalist. <laughs> well, Shireen, tell me about uh, some of the papers, some of the organizations that have stuck to the not-for-profit uh, model. I mean, certainly in my world, in public media, this you kind of live by the pledge drive and die by the pledge drive. And um, it has, you know, it has worked, especially during the Trump bump, for uh, several public radio affiliates. That suddenly, when people realize that democracy might, democracy might be jeopardized, it behooves you to chip in. I mean, it's actually, you know, they, they they make the case ad nauseum over the radio that it's a good deal that you're getting, but that doesn't resonate with younger listeners necessarily. There's a there's an actuarial and generational divide with the whole pledge drive thing. You don't have people listening to radio or watching linear TV as much. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So what we see our members doing is, you know, they've adapted to to the market, right? So it's it's email newsletters. It's and it's not an annual pledge. It's a it's a recurring thing. Um, they don't so much use the term subscriptions because most of our members don't have paywalls, believe it or not, um, and most of them share their content freely, including with for profit publishers. So like if we have three hundred and sixty members, there are about six thousand media outlets that actually republish the content. But still, in terms of the subscription model, we think of it more as a membership model. So you have organizations. And I think this is appealing to the younger people. It's like, hey, you know, you're one of us, right? You're like, you're part of this effort that we that we have. And so can you chip in $10 a month or $20, $20 a month? So it's more of a recurring contribution. And then, yes, they do do their end of year fundraising campaigns like any nonprofit. And we have a program called Newsmatch where a lot of our members are eligible. And if they raise a certain amount, it's usually between 10 and 12, 20,000. This national pool of funders will match that amount. So that's a way to kind of get a little end of year spark going. Um, but honestly, I think it's much more, the appeal is much more like tugging at the heartstrings. Like it's important for you to have us here. And therefore, just like you could give to the local library or you give to the, the hospital pledge drive or you support the volunteer ambulance company, support us because we're here and we've got your back. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're discussing the role of local journalism in a healthy democracy. I am a panelist on behalf of the James River Writers on a on a Zoom panel, and we're co-opting this for full disclosure. Thank you very much. Our guests are Shireen Azimi of the Institute for Nonprofit News. We have Michael Paul Williams, columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and Professor Mallory Perryman of VCU's Robertson School of Media and culture, where she teaches broadcast journalism. I have to ask you, I have a lot of New York Times envy. I was a fellow there during business school, and for the longest time, they brought in McKinsey and the others. They said, how do we thread this thing? We don't want to go slash and burn. We don't want to follow a lot of these regional newspapers that thought that you could cut your way to sustainable profitability in a higher 
stock price. They stuck with the newsroom. They stuck with FedExing the flak jackets to Iraq and everything. And finally, finally, that paid off, especially in the Trump bump, where if you look at the earnings right now, they don't care if print advertising is hemorrhaging in the double digits because they have such a pop of digital subscribers. People have been trained to pay and to pay dearly to the extent that they can go out and buy, what was it, The Athletic recently? I mean, that they go in and disrupt NPR by putting out the daily, that they have a brand studio internally. I don't know of any other newspaper that has done that without a billionaire backstop, Dr. Perryman. They haven't. The New York Times is a is a, a beast <laughs> in the in the in the news world. I mean, and I think you're you're pointing out something really important. They're the only ones who have done it that way. And they're probably the only ones who can do it that way because there's only so much space. I mean, you can't replicate that that model. Um, on a local level. And it works for the Times, and thank goodness it does. Um, But national news organizations overall, your flagship media organizations, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and then of course, all the networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, and the cable channels, they're not the the ones in trouble. They have their, their struggles, of course, but like, they're fine. Like the big guys are doing okay. And what we're having a trouble with is the local folks. And that's, that to me is, far scarier than the prospect of losing CNN. <laughs> well, what about what about the the likes of Axios and the other digital natives that have venture funding or private equity funding that can swoop into a news desert such as Richmond? I believe Axios Richmond just launched and maybe with two people, but again, you got to collect the hard copy, the hard kind of school board meeting stuff. Michael, from actual workers out there doing it, you could only fill a newspaper with so much AP and Bloomberg copy and Reuters copy. Yeah, we've we've watched Axios come in with interest and um, uh, remains to be seen um, how that works and why it would work better for them than the people who are actually here on the ground um, in a place like Richmond. I take, look, I I always paraphrase when I do episodes on this. I think it was Naughty by Nature, 1991, 1992, I, I paraphrase and say, you down with OPC, other people's content. So Axios and Politico and the others are kind of scraping for these newsletters. They get these great links, Morning Brew and others, but I, I have not been impressed that there's a lot of shoe leather reporting. And that and, and you know, venture capitalists would like that. It's asset light, it's employee light, it's unionization light. But it's it's the way people consume or I'd say a n- growing number of people, and maybe it's generational, maybe it's not. But consume information in in the kind of bits that Axios provides, and I don't know if that means we need to adjust to the times. Uh, I suspect legacy media, media. I suspect it does. But going back to an earlier point, I mean, the fact that we have to convince people that we are essential is extremely problematic because, regardless of how they feel about whether we're essential or not, we are. And if we fail, they fail. And, and, and this system doesn't work. The system doesn't work without local newspapers on so many levels. So uh, there's a failure at some point. I don't know if it's in the education system, which is the emphasized civics lessons or, or, or what. We need to learn how to be responsible citizens again. And part of that is being a discerning news consumer. And that doesn't always mean going for the national model, although that's important, or consuming in little bits. So. I think there are some challenges all around there. I think about South Florida, Shireen, and the Miami Herald that I grew up with, McClatchy, the parent company, it merged. It was a mega merger with Knight Ritter. I mean, it was unthinkable back in the day. The Miami Herald was king. It broke the Gary Hart you know, story. I mean, going back, just launched so many great 
uh, reporters and columnists and everything. That now McClatchy has failed and it has capitulated to a hedge fund. And uh, uptown, you have the Sun Sentinel, which was owned by Tribune, which has also capitulated to a hedge fund. What is the end game? You know, I, I mean, people down there keep romancing some noblesse oblige or some Latin American billionaire is going to come in and just decide that this will be my my bauble and my gift to Miami. But that hasn't happened. Right. And I'm, I'm, I want to just piggyback on what Michael said about the essential nature, right? I, I do actually think, and, and this is me personally, maybe this is not the INN position, but I do feel like it's happening at the high school level, right? If kids are coming out and they're not taught to distinguish fact from opinion, right? Then right there, we have a problem with our news consumers and their habits, right? And so you have people who have kind of fallen into that, that national model of either watching MSNBC or Fox and kind of believing what you're, what is sort of spat at you. So I do feel like that the process may take a little more time than we would all like. I don't think it's just a financial and an economic model issue. I think it's also a cultural issue of people, uh, right? Of people not sort of understanding how to be discerning news consumers. Um, and so the flip side I think has to be and where we're trying to go is to sort of reframe this as a public good, right? As we were talking about before, in the way that people support you know, their, their libraries, it kind of has to be seen like that because we know the research shows that when people have local news, they vote more. There are more candidates running for office, right? People are more likely to be civically engaged and even to volunteer and actually local economies tend to function better. And also people report having a greater sense of satisfaction with their community, right? And the ability to kind of talk across the fence in a way that we've completely lost. So I, I do think it's essential and I think it part of it is economic, but I don't think that's all of it. And I think part of the why we're seeing this divide is because there's this cultural entrenchment happening where people have sort of lost the ability to have to take that broader perspective and to form their own conclusions. And again, that's more my personal uh, opinion, but I, I do see it across the board. Yeah, I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to kind of a business sensibility, but it's been such an elusive question for me, and I've covered it in many episodes, Shireen. But again, if you could, if you could set up a roll up and get venture funding or you know uh, patrons of the art funding and everything, and hire every great journalist who takes a buyout from every great paper and put it up and say you can work from anywhere, would you be able to sustainably run? an ambitious news enterprise. Look at the Texas Tribune, right? So one of our members, they cover state politics and they do deep investigations in Texas. It was co-founded, right, by Evan Smith. And he's now brought on Sewell Chan to be his editor-in-chief, right? These are major accomplished journalists who are choosing to work at this organization that's, what, about 13 years old. Uh, they're raising tens of millions of dollars. They're speaking truth to power. And they're not backing down. So I do think it's possible to run a significant, sizable news organization and pay people appropriately. Tease that out for me. What drives it for them? I hear that their events are extremely well attended. You know, they figured out the reader revenue. You know, they have figured out how to do other things that bring in money uh, in addition to the donations and in addition to the, you know, the, the ads and the, and the foundation money. So they have a diversified revenue stream. They have great personalities. And somehow they managed to walk that partisan divide and kind of, you know, report on everything that's going on in Texas, which, of course, is a fascinating state to report on. So they do have that going for them. Why hasn't this happened more in stereo in places that have kind of faced that that hedge fund guillotine? Philadelphia, Denver, uh, as Miami, as I said. Why haven't you seen this model or somebody try to serialize it or apply it to other places that are becoming impending news deserts? Anyone? 
I'll just say, I do think some of it's leadership, Robin. I do think some of it's leadership. But what does that, I mean, what what does it take if a mayor calls you, if a, oh gosh, if, a, you know, let's say, a, I don't know, a Jim Ucrop from Richmond or somebody who's known as the, the, the I don't know, the paternal, you know, Stuart Bainham tried it in Baltimore and other places. If you get a consortium of people together, university, tell me about what happened in Chicago with the public was it a public radio station and the BZ and the Chicago Sun Times? The Chicago Sun Times, which was orphaned, right? So it's now merging with the with the main public radio station out there under one big nonprofit umbrella. But I will say, you know, Robin, one of our affiliate members is American Journalism Project. Are you all familiar with them? So they they are taking more of that kind of social impact VC model, right? Where they'll go into a major metro area and they'll try to help start a more sizable publication with like, again, more sizable contributions. So AJP, I think is doing a lot on what you're talking about of trying to ramp up the size, uh, but there still is that need for those small community-based papers that aren't going to get that kind of money because they're just not as, um, they're not as sexy, right? To cover, you know, South side of Chicago may not seem as sexy, uh, but it still has a great need. I think um, we can't have a discussion about the news media and newspapers and democracy and the economics of it and, and the impact of technology without acknowledging that over much of this period, even beyond this period, dating back at least in my memory to the 1980s, there has been a concerted effort, especially on the political right, to discredit the news media. And it's been very effective to, to foment distrust in the news media. Now you can, you can, um, you can, um, we can, we can debate motives but it's been undeniable. And this occurred concurrently with the rise of Fox News, the rise of, of right-wing talk radio and people like Rush Limbaugh who were doing that sort of work to discredit um, the media. And now it's become mainstream politics. Um, recall Sarah Palin's comments about the lamestream media and, and that morphed into Donald Trump's fake news. So the people in the highest places of government and, and otherwise have encouraged what is happening now. And we can't ignore that fact that the demise of newspapers and other media has been something that they have coveted. Intentionality to this is what I'm trying to say. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking about the role of local journalism in a healthy democracy panel sponsored by James River Writers. Please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to friends and family. You can catch us on Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ. We're down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM, WERA in Arlington and much of Washington, D.C., and out west in Ventura County on KPPQ. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the role of local journalism in a healthy democracy, an advocacy panel discussion through the James River Writers Organization here in Richmond, Virginia. My guests are Michael Paul Williams, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the Richmond Times Dispatch, Shireen Azimi with the Institute for Nonprofit News, and Mallory Perryman. She's a professor of journalism at the VCU Robertson School. Is it too cute of me to discuss login fatigue? Right? We saw Netflix kind of capitulate a couple of weeks ago and start a stock market route and saying that many people out there, look, our numbers might not have been as hail as possible because many people are mooching on one another's uh, logins. And every time I want to read a great story, Dr. Perryman, 
you know, I hit up against the two article, three article paywall, and I am a consumer of news and I subscribe to various newspapers and I give to my member station and I give to PBS. But at some point, it kind of becomes ridiculous when you consider you have Spotify, Netflix, three or four newspaper subscriptions, public radio, public TV, and everybody is hitting you up along the way. Uh, what's going on? And, and is there a better mousetrap? So this is a really interesting question as we were talking about different news consumption habits, especially among different demographic groups. So news has been in for reckoning for some time with changing consumption habits. And most people, you know, blame the digital era and, you know, everything going online, but it's actually broadcast. You really need to look at for the reckoning that is soon to be upon us as you realize that the age of broadcast news consumers is, is much, much older um, than the median age of the United States, young people do not tune in <laughs> to broadcast news. They do not watch the local morning news, except for they all seem to know who Andrew Frieden is. He's weirdly a celebrity in my my classes. Everybody's a big Andrew Frieden fan. I am too, but um, <laughs> it just always struck me as kind of random. Um, but they they're not they're not appointment viewers. They don't they don't even have you know they they can't even bother getting an antenna to go in there on their TV and watch it for free. Um, and they don't they don't really they watch videos of course, but on TikTok and they're certainly not looking for news there and they don't want it there. I'll tell you that. Um, so you've got this whole you've got this whole generation coming up with a very different consumption habit. But I'll tell you what, there is hope. These young folks uh, are really into um, brands. So not necessarily consumer brands. They they trust people more than they trust organizations. They they like Andrew Frieden, right? But they don't, I mean, if I ask them other feelings about NBC 12, I'm not sure they feel so strongly about it. They gravitate towards people that they like and they like to listen to. They don't necessarily have to share their opinions. They just find them interesting and they'll follow what they have to say. So they will tune in and they will they will watch and they will read, but they're very selective about the voices that they're listening to. More so the people, the bylines seem to matter to them a little bit more than the actual organizations. I think the organizations are very caught up in this idea of media for them, but the people that they like, the journalists, and I don't know that they can think of them as journalists as much as they think of them as investigators or truth tellers, or which is kind of what journalists are, but nice. maybe maybe a rebrand there as well. Um, but you are seeing a little bit of that. So I, I don't know that, you know, these kids are not going to, pay for every subscription under the sun and have be breaking down paywalls left and right, but they are paying attention. It's just that they're paying attention in a little bit different way than we're used to. Michael, what do you think about that? I mean, time was you, you know, I would say that an association with something like the Miami Herald or the New York Times or the Boston Globe would have meant so much to me. But now that you've really established your name on your own, you have a widely followed Twitter handle, people can connect to you on LinkedIn or whatever channels you're on. They can opt into you and kind of synthetically build their own newspaper with their favorite bylines and experts and people from ESPN, people from across the planet tracking demography, Pew, INN. Has that given you some sort of uh, uh, inoculation from the vagaries of the newspaper business? Uh, no, I'm not nearly that big enough. But um, the, Mallory raises some interesting points that I hadn't thought of. Um, she probably knows that the Times-Dispatch, several years ago, got into the meteorology business wholesale. Weather used to be something we covered ad hoc. Whoever happened to have that particular shift had to make some calls to the National Weather Service, and we just kind of winged it. And um, a few years ago, we hired a, a gentleman named John Boyer, and he was our first real meteorologist. And um, he left, and now we have Sean Sublet. But we, you know, it, when we hired John Boyer, when we hired a meteorologist, there were a lot of... Um, 
puzzling, puzzled looks in the newsroom. But now you can't imagine a newspaper without one because of climate change. So it's a real thing now. So maybe that's part of what's going on with Andrew Frieden. Something else I thought of when Mallory was talking, it was like I'm a big basketball fan. And they keep saying the NBA is a star-driven league. And that's what journalism has become. I mean, in our celebrity culture, I mean, just think about how Donald Trump was a celebrity who got elected president. He didn't get elected president because he was a statesman or a politician. And that's just how we roll generationally and and culturally now. And, And I guess people move toward names they know more so than institutions, where it's institutions, I guess to Mallory's point, used to be the thing. Now people select the people from the New York Times that they dig and, and, and the Washington Post and various news organizations. So it's just, I don't know if, if we've adjusted as an industry to all of these. That we need someone to really study all this and kind of give meaning to it. Well, they I, like you, Michael, so don't worry. <laughs> I have a comment from attendee Martha Steger to the panelists and attendees. She writes, I agree we've had a generational problem for some time. Even 22 to 23 years ago in teaching a VCU communications class, I asked students where they got their news and the majority said Facebook. And I got to tell you, when I was first invited here and I gave a lecture at the Robertson School and I wanted to break an ice, break the ice with these millennials, I go, what do you guys watch on TV? It, you know, it was Judy Crenshaw's class, I think, eight years ago. And they all look around like, Mr., we don't watch TV. You know, one one's landlord threw in Fios and an old used TV. And that's got to change your – I mean, I mean, fast forward now, and, and, and Shireen, it's all mobile. I wanted to use this transition to ask you how the radio and TV world are being disrupted in this. Because in public broadcasting, at least, that's decidedly not for profit. But they haven't been nearly as aggressive – uh, versus the likes of Netflix or Spotify or Stitcher or the for-profit platforms, the apps that are really extracting the rents on the tablet and the smartphone. I mean, we see most of our publications are digital first, but most of them are print, right? That you read them in some way. But I will say more and more are getting into podcasts and a handful are, are radio and some are even actual public media uh, members as well. The interesting thing now is, right, you can even listen in your car because your car is Wi-Fi enabled or you can connect your phone. So you could have a subscription to Sirius and be listening to the news on Sirius or whatever other so I am curious to see how that affects. I think our members are starting to wonder what other formats they they should be in. But Mallory, to your point, you know, younger people are not watching news on television and they're for the most part really not listening to it on the radio. So whether that's going to come back around, I don't know. But one interesting thing we've seen is that our members have been trying to reach people where they are. So for example, during the pandemic, some of the members started using text messaging because they realized that in certain, uh, especially in urban neighborhoods where there was a lower income households who didn't necessarily have Wi-Fi in their apartments, but they needed to know things like where to get masks or where the food bank was, was serving out food, where to find COVID information. So they started a text messaging service where the reporters were then directly communicating with the readers and the readers could send in questions and the reporters would answer them. And they started getting thousands of, of chains going back and forth, whether that's financially viable is another question. Um, but it really earned them um, the loyalty of a lot of listeners and viewers. 
We've also seen more recently WhatsApp being used by the members because a lot of um, immigrants are not necessarily using, they're not even really on Facebook and Twitter as much. They're using WhatsApp to communicate, right? It's, a, it's an app on your phone. It's a cheap way of communicating both with your home country and with people in this country. So some of our members are using WhatsApp to send out their newsletters. So I think that the formats will continue to change. And maybe the question is not, you know, what should we do about radio and TV, but what are we doing to keep pace with people's consumption habits? Dr. Perryman, uh, I'm never one to resist the urge to quote a lyric, especially from the 80s. Uh, I believe the children are the future. You teach them well and let them lead the way. And I think about students and your students a lot. I'm an, uh, an adjunct, a journalist in residence at the University of Richmond's Robin School. And when I have students come and approach me and discuss how writing is going to be involved in their careers or broadcast work, a lot of times it's for journalist-adjacent stuff, such as brand management or going into a company and doing a private label podcast. How do you, with, a, with an honest face, look at a 20-year-old and say, yes, I'm going to guide you into a journalism career. There's so little visibility. There's no social contract. There's no guarantee that anybody can promote you into a, a living wage, much less a, a serious, sustainable career. Um, to be totally honest with you, I am totally honest with them. I My students very often do not go into journalism. In fact, I would say probably right now about 70% of our graduates are not actually, or they're, or they're even their first jobs, they might stay for like a two-year contract and then they usually up and leave. And it's for so many reasons, burnout, um, the hours are terrible and the pay, I mean, the pay is just, I mean, this isn't a living wage for a lot of these, these people. I mean, even in a small market, it's just, it's crumbs. I mean, they can, they can now make more money working at Starbucks. And so it helps me to let them know that it is <laughs> sort of a thankless, you have to, it's a calling for a lot of them, right? They have to really believe in what they're doing. Um, and I, I let them know right from the beginning that every skill that they're learning is going to come in handy, no matter what they do. And in the worst case scenario, they leave and they're an excellent writer and they're a good storyteller and they have an appreciation for journalism that they didn't have before. And maybe they go out there and fight for it. And that's what I ask. I'm like, if you're not going to practice it, at least fight for it. Um, because there's, you, you don't have to you don't have to suffer in the newsroom if it's not what you want to do, but I have to be realistic with them at this point. It is a very difficult career path. Um, and some of them do it and they love it. And I have some who are super successful and they do work their way up the ladder and they find a place they really love and they, and they find a good newsroom. But I would say probably about three out of four of them do not. <laughs> um, they do find great jobs. I'll, I'll give them that. It's certainly not a I, I can truthfully tell them it's a worthwhile degree. I just can't tell them with a straight face that this is going to be a successful career for them because I, I do not know that. <laughs> um, I can hope it, but I don't know it. Michael, how many cub reporters and prospective reporters contact you every month for advice or some, some degree of handholding? Um, not too many, actually. I, some, um, probably my share. But the point you all are making, I mean, of, of course, I went into this business 40 years ago because I wanted to get rich. I mean, no. <laughs> it's, that's Of all the change we're talking about, that's the part that's least changed. <laughs> yeah, but here, let me push back. It's, it's, that the pay suck. It's, it's existential. It's, problem. It's existential. There's true job insecurity. If you always have this sword of Damocles above you, if you're worried about gigging and hustling and doing side things just to hang on to a passion, and it's especially exacerbated the demographic differences. I mean, people who have wealthy parents or, or trust fund kids who could go to a program and take on a vanity major, that's one thing. It's all other thing to ask a working undergrad 
to take an unpaid internship or a low-paid internship and think about that as a career afterwards. There are very few backstops. Yeah, it's um, I'm I'm constantly amazed at the steady stream of young people who continue to pursue this as a career. I mean, I I have to resent resist the temptation to ask them if they're if they've lost their minds. And year in and year out, they came they come pouring into our newsrooms as interns or and eventual hires. And all I can say is one of the best things about being a the the people I've worked with are some of the finest people I will ever know. They're in it because they truly want to make a difference. Shireen, amid all the doom and gloom, kind of in the stretch run of this interview, surely there's some paradoxical findings and factoids and trends that you can share with us. Because look, this has been flogged so many times uh, by Pew, by the Columbia Journalism Review, by every J school, by every professor, by every journalist saying, I'm, I'm leaving and going into PR or storytelling. Give us some good news. Give us some glimmers. I will say, you know, and some of this is anecdotal, but first of all, so at INN, we have a number of partnerships with universities to bring in interns, right? Um, either people who are still in school or their first one or two years outside of school. And we kind of have a policy that all of our internships that we're involved with have to be paid, right? So if we help place a, a, an intern at a member news organization, they are going to get paid for that time. Uh, generally speaking, we pull in some institutional funding and then the newsroom matches part of it. So that person, so that's one small step to try to get around that whole, like, I can't even afford to take an internship to get my foot in the door conundrum that frankly I was in when I got out of college. I couldn't afford to work for free. Um, Another thing I'm seeing just on our listserv where the members kind of throw out questions and answer is they're really thinking about the work-life balance and sort of quality of life. So they're having questions like, um, do you guys have like, what's your paid leave policy? And we're thinking about implementing a sabbatical and how should it be every three years? And, you know, what are you doing about, you know, pregnancy leave if you're a small organization and what kind of benefits are you offering? So even though a lot of them are smaller shops, they're really thinking about how to make work a part of a person's life, but not like all of a person's life. And I think, I think journalism, I did, I never worked in a newsroom, but from what I hear, you know, it, it was terrible. Like the hours you were sort of on call forever. And so I think there's this awareness that it is a job and it is a calling, but it is part of someone's life. And I guess the, the other encouraging thing is Robin, like, it's not just a question of fixing the way things were, but maybe reimagining how they could be different. So we started tracking diversity in the member newsrooms, and we found that compared with industry data overall, our newsrooms are slightly more diverse. There's still a ways to go, but the leadership is about 50% or more women, uh, which again has historically not been the case in newsrooms, right? With top positions for editors in chief and publishers going to women. So I do feel like there's this directional trend toward more diversity, both at the, at the entry levels, but also at the mid and senior levels. We've got founders and entrepreneurs or people of color who are coming up from their communities who wanna go back and serve their communities. And frankly, they're able to tap into other kinds of support because they're able to do other kinds of reporting. So it's not the case of Axios parachuting in and reporting on a community. It's people coming up, reporting with the community that they know. So I'm hopeful that the money will meet, <laughs> will meet that need and that vision. Dr. Perryman, why aren't universities more natural allies for 
uh, local newspapers, especially if they could start from scratch. You know, you don't have to worry about the printing press. You could be digital natives. You have embedded mentors, a program that would churn out graduates with real applicable skills and bylines. I mean, you see it with the overlap. They call it the TIAA overlap with NPR stations and universities, you know, KUNC, Virginia Tech and, and, and Radio IQ, WBUR and Boston University. Why haven't you seen this more with uh, newspapers and, and universities, which after all do have a fundraising capability, do have uh, parallel missions, can get donors excited about a J school and other adjacencies such as communications or podcasting or brand management? So I'm a, uh, I had done my undergraduate in broadcast journalism at the University of Missouri, which is well known for its hospital method of teaching with journalism. They actually own the local NBC affiliate. They um, run the local newspaper and they have an affiliation with the local NPR station. So it's that model. Um, the difference between Mizzou and of course, somewhere like BCU is they have about a hundred times more staff members working in the journalism program there. So even a school like BCU, we have a fairly large journalism program, one of the largest in the state. And we still actually only have about eight journalism faculty on staff, right? So there's very few of us. And of course, when you're talking about cub reporters, everything needs to be fact-checked about three times and then often rewritten several times. So it's it's a lot. It's just it's very labor intensive. But you do see uh, an increased interest in this. And in fact, I was looking for some numbers from Pew. I, I Apparently, I just spend all day on Pew research, but they had some really great numbers about the number of student reporters who are reporting in state houses besides the nonprofits. It's a lot of student reporters now. You're actually seeing them sort of fill in these gaps. And a lot of universities are thinking that way, including VCU, when we see local news disappearing in these ways. You know, our first instinct is to say, well, what can what can we do? What can our students do um, to fill in those gaps? Um, and it's hard work. Um, and the local, you know, the student newspapers do their share of reporting on campus. But to actually, you know, we do put students in the state house here, we put them in the Capitol with our Capitol News Service, and we report and our stories are distributed across the Associated Press, and they appear in the Washington Post, and it's great for our students, but it's an enormous amount of oversight. Um, and that's the key issue, too. So not, o- not only are newsrooms understaffed, journalism schools are <laughs> also fairly understaffed. Michael, what about these narrow verticals? You know, here, uh, to be honest, more people talk about the, you know, Richmond Biz Sense, which was, uh, I guess, a guy who worked at the Times Dispatch who was frustrated, an editor with the business section, and its inability to innovate goes off and does something that's digital native, hires a bunch of hungry young reporters. A lot of it is newsletter-ish, where they're providing intelligence reports for real estate investors and legal reports and subscription events. And the like, and then you have the Virginia Mercury, which is more kind of a uh, they 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 got benefactors, uh, the the Virginia Cardinal or, or or some others. There are a handful of niche players kind of stepping in and and hiring these reporters before they leave town. Yeah, well, um, there's a market out there. When you look at how newspapers are no no you know not staffed anywhere near to the extent they used to be, you know there are a lot of young journalists out there who need employment. So, I mean, there's that. But when you talk about the Politico playbook or Richmond Biz Sense, you know, commercial real estate report, you know, these are super directly targeted. And you talk about news you can use. This is really like. Yeah, I think I think people have moved away from the general, the idea of a one size fits all kind of general news application mm-hmm. that the traditional legacy newspaper represents. And, and you know, it's just like online. People self-select their interests, they self-select their political leanings, 
you know, people just go to their points of interest now. Um, they're, they're no longer generalist, I think, when it comes to news consumption. And, and yeah, that's got to hurt, I think, you know, the traditional newspaper. I think we have to adjust in that way. Shireen Azimi of the Institute for Nonprofit News, when is this, you know, fast forward this for me? It's just, I've, I've came into journalism, professional journalism in 2000, and that's kind of when you felt things turn, when the web was not your friend and it was cannibalizing from the print business and you started even in great economies having secular layoffs and constant downsizing and mergers and acquisitions and right-sizing EBITDA margins. Does this just go on ad infinitum? Is there any kind of you know terrifying moment where you could stand up in front of Congress or state capitals and say this is a national crisis look there are things happening in Congress right there is the there is the uh, rebuild no- local news coalition as some of you know right which has many many signatories the INN is one of them there is legislation uh looking at ways to bring in some public money for news and obviously that gets concerning because people don't want there to be any conflict but you know it's it's happened with public media over the years right those those stations get money and so they're looking at ways to possibly either bring in public dollars or create incentives whether it's tax breaks and incentives to help local news stay uh, afloat my understanding is that one of the issues is part of the way that local newspapers kept going is that they would run those uh, government backed ads, right? Those sort of announcements and things that had to be given public notice. Um, and if that goes away, then the pages get thinner and it becomes it becomes harder. So they're look, they are looking at new models. I do think that there are people in Congress and government who realize that, that it's a crisis. Um, and there are there is some bipartisan support to come up with solutions, um, but it's, you know, it's bit by bit. <laughs> I just remember the indignation covering subprime crisis, where back then they would talk about private profits and socialized risk, and General Motors gets bailed out because it's considered systemically important. AIG gets bailed out because it's systemically important. The obverse is too terrifying to ponder. But you know, going back to your point, Michael, when you're saying, when are people going to realize that you have to be really worried about this and discriminating about your news consumption, that they're going to say, okay, we have to get some sort of package together, some different way of thinking. Certainly the free market has not done justice to, to kind of the public mission. It's, it's kind of the, the best of times and the worst of times. I, the times suggest that newspapers, among other media, should be at their peak because there's just so much need. Um, there's just so much crisis. We're literally at a crisis point in democracy. And I don't know if news organizations are effectively sounding that message. You know, the sky is literally falling. And it seems like we're cautious in, in conveying that. And, you know, we are seeing in in real time what happens. I mean, with journalists literally fleeing Russia. You know, what happens without a free press, without a in, an independent media? We've also done things. We, we, we were at a point of interrogation of how we've always done things. This may not work anymore, <laughs> to be honest, This because that's we're not in this kind of world. You mean the same side on, on the one hand, on the other hand, the way kind of NPR does it? If you can't advocate full throat on behalf of democracy without having to engage in both sideism, where is that? You, you, we're not serving the public. And we've seen the push by the national media, by the, the Times and the Post in recent years toward that direction. Their, their willingness to call a liar a liar, call out a lie, to call out racism by its name. It, it seems obvious, but it, it was not how we did things traditionally. And um, that's not the world we live in now. 
I think to the extent that news organizations more fully embrace an advocacy on behalf of democracy, on behalf of the empowerment of all people, it will serve us. Close us out, Dr. Perryman. I, I just think I should endorse everything Michael just just said. And that's what we that's what we tell when I have to explain to freshman students what journalism is and what they might might why they might want to major in it. I tell them it's it's truthful storytelling. It's holding you know, holding power accountable. It is calling it like you see it um, and being as fair and open-minded as possible. But, you know, this view from nowhere that only benefits those currently in power is not, is not objectivity. Objectivity is the process of journalism. It is finding information, evaluating it, presenting it, being transparent with who you talk to and where you got it. That's objectivity. It's the process of creating a story. It's not the information itself that's objective. And it's certainly not the journalist because we're not robots. Um, we have perspectives. We just look to provide information in a way that that helps people, helps inform them, helps them care more about democracy, makes them feel more connected to their communities. And that's what local journalism does. And that is why it's so critical that we maintain it in however, whichever way we can come up with next. I'd like to fit in a question from an attendee for Jump Ball for anybody to attend. It's Cynthia Davis asks, I teach at Christopher Newport, and I'm currently the sole faculty member dedicated to launching a brand spanking new journalism minor. What would you say are the top ideas, concepts, concerns I should consider in building our program? Jump Ball. Wow. Um, any um, journalism program, I think, needs to be about more than journalism. It's got to be much more about the technology and the economics of the industry and demographic study of the industry than it's traditionally been. We've got, I mean, just some of the things we've talked about, which um, Shireen and Mallory know a lot more about than I do, just have to be much more in the forefront. I mean, it, it's gotta be that's kind of a course, not only in the survival of democracy via journalism, but the survival of journalism as a business. Shireen, last word? On the journalism school, I would just say I would encourage you, Cynthia, to um, again to teach your students that there are ways to do it that aren't just like repairing what's broke, right? Uh, being being creative, um, I think technology is part of it. Being audience centric is part of it. Having increased diversity in who gets to tell the story and focus on what stories get told. So um, I would just encourage you to look at the newer models that are being created rather than just teaching back in the day. <laughs> Can I also add a, a practical piece of advice? Um, I would I would not silo out different mediums. We're beyond that at this point. We actually still have our journalism program divided into digital and I guess opposed to analog. Um, and all digital, right? <laughs> right. It's it's all. And our students, you know, my students are really thrilled to watch it to write in broadcast style because we write in all caps and we don't use AP style. But then I'm like, oh, by the way, you gotta like be able to put your story on the web. <laughs> some point and you gotta you gotta write like a newspaper and they're like oh man but being that nimble to go between writing for print and broadcast and i always tell my students you're gonna be better at one or the other or you're gonna be bad at both or whatever but you know you're gonna um you gotta be able to do a little bit of everything so there's just not a lot of sense anymore in and dividing it up and we still do but that's because it's a curriculum and it takes a long time to undo once you've done it I'd like to thank our panelists tonight's James River Writers Advocacy Panel Discussion, The Role of Local Journalism in a Healthy Democracy. We were talking to Shireen Azimi of the Institute for Nonprofit News. She was joining us from New Jersey. Here in Central Virginia, Professor Mallory Perryman at Virginia Commonwealth University's Robertson School of Media and Culture. And of course, 
Michael Paul Williams, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the Richmond Times Dispatch, veteran columnist. Uh, thank you so much. And you're all welcome to come back on, on Full Disclosure. Thank you. Full Disclosure, special thanks to Bryn Markham at James River Writers. And our producer tonight is Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and rave if your heart so feels. Uh, This show airs on Virginia Public Radio, WVTF. We are on WERA in Arlington. We are on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.